Welcome to The Fabric Podcast. As we dig into this dangerous book, the Bible. Yes, it's been dangerous in all the wrong ways over the years, but maybe, just maybe, it might be dangerous in a rich, challenging, hopeful kind of way in each of our lives too. Here's Greg Meyer. We have been um, talking about these twin dangers of this book. And um, our goal in doing that is to give you some tools, to give you some practice, and hopefully to give you some inspiration around this book so that it can actually be an asset, uh, something valuable to your life. Um, we want, we, I, want it, I want this book to be dangerous to you, all right? Not dangerous in the bad way, dangerous in the way, you know, where it gets used as an agenda or to create fears that you know, and all those things get layered on top of it so that we can use it to hurt or, um, you know, to keep other people in their place, to, to divide people, but rather so that it can endanger the things in you and around you that limit who you are and what you could be part of. And I think when we let that kind of danger get at us, then we can be part of making this world a better place and be part of the corrective that helps fix some of the damage that this book can be used improperly for, can be abused for. Now, week one gave us some clues about how to deal with some of um, the obstacles of time and of language and of culture that are in this book. Uh, so if you um, didn't hear that or if you just need a refresher, go back and listen to that podcast. That was the April 16th, so go do that. But to be a part of this positive danger of this book, it, it means you need to have a pretty good grasp of this book, a pretty good deep grasp of the overall picture of it. And I know that's not easy. For some of you, it's probably even a deal breaker. So just, I don't know how to do that. I, you know, I can't be there. Um, you know, it'd be nice if you could just leave this on the shelf and pull it out when the time is needed and you've got to have that special Bible verse or something. But that's not how it works, you know? In my, in my group this last week, one of the things I said to them is, and this is on your outlines, the Bible's going to serve you best when it is a foundation to your life, not a Band-Aid, okay? And I'm afraid it often gets treated like a Band-Aid, right? I need a Bible verse. I need something. And that, we hear that. I don't know if you do that, but I think that's one of the impressions we get from society. You know, looking for that perfect verse to solve your dilemma of the day really falls easily prey to that, I, you know, that problem of what I would call literalistic reading or... Um, or even of magical thinking that doesn't take the gap seriously of that time and language and culture present us with when we try to deal with this book. And it's much better to have a, a general feel of the book, get a sense of it, an understanding of what's in here, so that that general sense that is inside you can steer you towards those particular places that you maybe need at a, a, a particular time, right? Um, that's more like a deeply woven, deeply connected relationship with this book. It helps you re use it in a way that is responsible rather, rather than expecting it to be a quick fix for you sometime when you've got a problem. Now, how do you get that deep bedrock understanding of this book? That foundational grasp of it, especially if you weren't raised with it or if you were raised with it in a way that was really an unhealthy way of, of dealing with it. I probably just have two suggestions on that. One is gradually, you get that grasp gradually, and you don't do it alone, right? You don't do it alone. 
Now, hopefully you get a good dose of uh, kind of the big stuff that's going on here, those overarching and some of the ways of dealing with some of the problems in the book from what you hear here. Um, we try to do that, I and all the rest of the speakers, but I have to say that isn't our, while that is one of our goals, it isn't our only goal, not even necessarily the main goal of what we do when we're speaking on Sunday mornings, because there's a lot of things in life, you know, that this book speaks to, but just quoting the Bible doesn't help it, right? Uh, there's more ways. I mean, Jesus didn't hardly ever quote the Bible when he talked. Well, it didn't exist yet, but that's beside the point, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it is an important goal for us, but it isn't the only thing to do. Um, and you know what? You can read this on your own. <laughs> surprise, surprise. We will continue to, uh, you know, throughout these Rome challenges, read um, observe, apply, meditate, a, a great little rhythm of how you can deal stuff. We'll, it's on the bottom of your Sunday paper this week. We'll continue to throw those out. Um, but you also need people to process this with. Now, our fabric groups are there for you. I mean, they're, they're specifically designed to help you do that with this book and as well as with a lot of other things in life and a lot of the other things we talk about. But, those, but the point of that is to find people that you can share ideas, you can share questions, you can learn from, you can hear what inspires them or feels important to them, what stretches them, and you can do the same for them and uh, you know, begin to explore it that way. I mean, that's a really healthy way to approach all this. Uh, the point is do it with others, not just on your own. So maybe you can hear in what I just said these three arenas that Fabric works really hard to develop all being present there. there. There's a role when we are all together, right? Hearing some of these stories, getting inspired, getting ideas around them, and then having a smaller group of people where you have these significant relationships where you can start, what, you know, figuring it out for yourself, or you can be part of the conversation. You can add your own ideas and learn from each other. And then there's a role that you have by yourself, your own personal spiritual habits of that are going to support what we're doing together. All of those three arenas, those three bowls, we often talk, to, talk about them as work together and need to work together. Now, one of the tools is to let the whole interpret the part, not the part interpret the whole, right? That is, what are these big themes in the Bible that continually come up, those arcs, those red threads, and how do we use them to better understand the individual and the particular stories and writings and things that happen to be in there. Now, that tangible, touchable shape of love as we experience it in beauty and food and hospitality and other places, that is one of them. I want to look now at another one of those themes, one of those big themes with you today. And this theme, um, which runs throughout the Bible, speaks to the limitations, the limitations that we put on ourselves, telling us, more about what we can't do than what we can do, okay? I think they line up well with what we talked about earlier as well. Now, I want to focus on two stories from Jesus' life that you likely already know, and you probably have even heard me talk about them before um, if you've been around here long enough, and we repeat some of these key ideas because they're key ideas, right? Right? So they're important to revisit every once in a while and to remember that those are legs of the table that we need to stand on. So the first is a story that's only found in John's gospel. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A gospel is a book in the Bible that's about the life of Jesus. And John is the fourth one. It was the one that was written last among all of them. And unlike last story, which came from the very end of Jesus' life, this one comes from the very beginning of his career. Um, so John tells us, um, John tells us seven miracles 
that Jesus performed. He's got seven of them in his gospel. Now, that seven is an auspicious number, right? It's three plus four is seven. One of these details that you want to pay attention to in the Bible. Three being the divine number, the number of God in Hebrew thinking. Four being the number of the earth, right? So three plus four is seven. Um, that and the fact that most of the miracles that John talks about don't show up in the other Gospels gives you a pretty good clue that these are more than just miracles. In fact, John calls these miracles, and they're better understood, as signs. He calls them signs. What is a sign? A sign is a message, right? I mean, a sign along the road isn't important. It's not about the sign, right? The sign is telling you that there is something where you are or where you're going that you need to know about, right? Okay, and that's what these seven are. Now, this story that I'm going to read to you is the very first of these signs. Is it a coincidence that it's the first one? Yeah. Or is there something important about it? Does it have some primacy among the seven um, miracles, the seven signs that he talks about so that he puts it first? Well, frankly, we don't know. But considering just how symbolic John makes everything in this, I think you probably need to know that there is some certain status. There's a reason why this isn't just like one out of a random group of seven that happened to come up first. And likewise, maybe the importance of the message that it carries isn't just happened to be the first message out of a couple of messages that he wants to share with us, all right? So I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. Um, so this is a reading from Rome. Read, observe, apply, meditate. That isn't your homework for this week. Yeah, you can spend some time working through it yourself later, but I want to read it to you now, okay? This is John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Interesting. wonder why she's telling him that. And Jesus says to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Which sounds both like a combination of there's something big going on here and being kind of sassy to your mom right? Yeah, heavy, heavy sassy. <laughs> and I love his mother's response to that. His mother says to his servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> it's neat to know that even if you're the son of God, your mom can still like boss you around, you know, <laughs> no hope for the rest of us. Okay, so now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. End of story except a little epilogue here. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, I'm not particularly interested in what Jesus did in the story. 
I'm really interested in what he didn't do. This is kind of the quintessential Jesus miracle, right? Turning water into wine. It's, you know, either walk on water, turning water into wine. It's what everybody talks about. In fact, I read this, I saw this meme on social media the other day. I found $20 in a parking lot. And I thought to myself, what would Jesus do? So I turned it into wine. You may have to think about it for a minute. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, you know, you, you, have to th- you have to realize that this is kind of a wow. Like, Jesus turned water into wine. Sure, it is a wow, but that's what he did. What didn't he do? That's what I want to look at. I'll be brief. He didn't do anything. He told the waiters, the stewards at the party that they should fill the jars with water. Do the math, by the way. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons, that's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Then he told them to take some out and give it to the chief steward. That's it. He didn't touch it. He didn't um, wave a magic wand over it. He didn't say a prayer as far as we know. He didn't even look at it. They, the people, the stewards of the feast, they did everything. So let's recap. On their own, they ran out. And on their own, what they did have wasn't as good as it could be. But when they included Jesus, when they included the third strand the third strand Jesus did not take over no it was still their party it was still their wine but Jesus was now part of the experience with them and when Jesus was part of it with them it was far more and better than all they could ever ask or imagine now John the writer ends by saying that this was the first of his signs, right? Signs. What, so what is a sign? What is the message? That Jesus could do something that nobody else could do? Or that Jesus, that Yahweh, that God believes in us and what we can do and the role that we can play? And knowing that when we include, when we weave our lives with the third strand, rather than trying to go it alone, our limits can be blown wide open. Another story. That was a drinking story. Let's try an eating one, okay? Another, you probably know, the feeding of the 5,000. This story had to be pretty core to what Jesus' life was all about because the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is told six times in those four stories, in, in, in those four books, in one form or another, okay? Um, so l- let me read it first. This is from uh, Matthew chapter 14. Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been killed, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, and he cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. 
you give them something to eat. And they replied, oh, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, well, bring them to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven, he blessed and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Now, there is a lot going on in that story that we do not have time today to chase down. But I want to focus on something that parallels what the story from the wedding feast is all about. And that is what Jesus didn't do and what that says about our limits. So, you get the picture, right? Um, Jesus uh, and his disciples are somewhere out in the countryside, far from town. People from all over the surrounding area have walked to be there with Jesus, to hear him, to see him. And as the day day wears on, there's a problem emerging, right? What are these people going to do? I mean, it's dinner time, and there's no food anywhere to feed everybody. This crowd could turn into a mob in no time. That would not be real good, right? Okay, so... The disciples, Jesus' inner circle, they turn to Jesus. That's good, right? They turn to Jesus, but not to include him. They don't turn to him to include them. They turn to him to unload their dilemma on him. They want him to solve their problem. They want Jesus to be the solution. They just thought that's what they needed to do. And Jesus would have nothing with it. He would not have it. No, because... He knew that they were the solution. They just couldn't see it. So Jesus tells them, the crowd doesn't need to go anywhere. You feed them. And they are thinking, well, that's preposterous. I mean, we can't do it. We have nothing. We got a couple of loaves of bread, a couple of fish, and that's it. And by the way, the details again, did you catch the number? Five loaves, two fish. Easy math, right? Seven, all right, means pay attention. In fact, that's kind of code telling you that, guess what? That's going to be enough food, right? (laughs) First century storytelling. Got to remember that. So Jesus says, okay, okay, bring what you got here. Let's do this together. And Jesus does what they should, what what they could have done. He looks up to heaven. I mean, meaning he uh, includes God, includes Yahweh. Um, He knows that I... This isn't something that we do on our own. And then he breaks it. He blesses it. He, he gives, he basically, he gets thanks for the little they have, which never seems to be enough. Nonetheless, it is worth giving thanks for. And, um, you know, that's what he does. And so then he takes that and he hands it back to his disciples. And he says, okay, now hand it out to everybody. Now, I'm just imagining the disciples, like, looking back and forth at each other, saying, like, seriously? I mean, that's, that's great, Jesus. I mean, we can do that, but this is not going to work. I mean, this little bit of food that you told us to hand out to everybody, it's going to be gone before it goes through a couple dozen people. And there are thousands of people out there. I mean, but you know the story. The food doesn't run out. Not in the story. It keeps going 
and going and going. And at the end, they gather, gather up the leftovers, and there's how many baskets left? Twelve. There's that number again. Three, the divine number, times four, the number of the world. Everything, right? Twelve baskets full. Twelve, the number of the tribes of Israel. There is enough to feed all the people of God. And, and just think, well, what happens to those 12 baskets? I mean, that's a question you're supposed to ask from a story like this. I suppose each one goes to feed another crowd, right? And then they pick up the leftovers and there are 12 baskets from each of those. Now we got 144, and it just keeps on going. Now, just in case you're getting sidetracked, this story is not about how to feed a crowd, okay? Got it? Good, thank you. <laughs> Don't want us going down that road, right? Now, you shared in that exact same banquet about 20 minutes ago. 2,000 years in the mill still continues. The feast continues not because Jesus or because God did some magic trick, a miracle. No, it was a sign, right? The cargo, not the vehicle. The cargo is the message. It's the sign, which is what? A sign that the limits that we assume are keeping us from doing great things are greatly unfounded. More is possible when we don't just stand by and wait for God to take over and to do it for us, but we realize that it is our role to weave our lives with God. More is possible. When we weave our lives with the three strands of our true selves and the people, the world around us, and God, when we share a vision and when we work together, more than you could ever ask or imagine is possible. Now, alternately, alternatively, a way that this story and all of these miracle stories are ever understood is shock and awe. Wow, look what Jesus did. He fed 5,000 people plus women and children um, with five loaves and two fish. That is amazing. I'd better believe in Jesus. The problem with that is that meaning is only there if that event actually happened the way it is told that it happened. And, uh, well, one thing... Stories from the first century didn't work that way. That's not the kind of questions they were asking. And second, I've been saying this from long before I ever started Fabric. When you ask the wrong question, I don't care how good your answer is, it's going to be unhelpful. And asking whether it actually happened that way or not is not the right question. It isn't the question that they want us to ask. So, you know, uh, if it has to be true for this story to have meaning, then... You either have to believe it actually happened or you didn't. And since there is no way to possibly prove it, all we've got are some words that were written here 2,000 years ago to say, well, it says so. So some people will believe and some people won't, and you will argue forever and never be able to convince someone else. And while you're doing that arguing the whole time, you will have missed the point. And the point is that God believes in you more than you Believe in yourself. And God also wants to be with us, included, you and me. 
And God wants us to be with each other. As loners, each of us can do some great things, but we can never do enough, especially not for the needs of our big world and our complicated lives. But together, as part of the fabric of the universe, you have no idea what can be accomplished. And that, that is a message that the world, that you, that I need to hear. There are a lot of messages in this book that the world and you and I need to hear. And life, like life, it takes effort, it takes practice to get the stuff that matters out of it. But it's good. Deep down in our soul, kind of good when we bother to do it. Set your pens down and just shake out those rumblings and take a breath. It's funny to think that you believe in us, that we matter to the universe. We aren't just people that hopefully aren't messing things up, but we actually are part of all the good. We thank you that this world is something that we can touch and taste and love and enjoy and share with each other, and that when we do that, it doesn't run out. It just keeps on going with more leftovers than we ever started. We think about those places where the limits seem to be so strong in our own lives. We look at the newspapers. We think about some of the situations our friends or ourselves or families are in, where we feel so stuck. We feel like we've hit the ceiling. Remind us that we are never alone and that what we can do when we wrap our arms around each other can be far more than we would ever ask or imagine. May it ever be so. Thanks for listening. We hope these conversations are helpful and connective. You can find out more about Fabric at fabricmpls.com. There you can find notes from previous conversations and other resources for deepening your relationships with the threads of yourself, others, and that third strand we often call God. You can also find ways of connecting to a group, whether you're in the Twin Cities or not. You can join in supporting this community financially too. It's through the generous giving of people like you that Fabric is sustained. Again, that's fabricmpls.com. Thanks for being Fabric in your unique